Amen. Well, let's turn over to um, Matthew chapter 11. For those of you who haven't been here, or even if you have been here, I need to just real quickly summarize some things. We've been talking about what is God really like. And a lack of understanding the true nature and character of God has made us susceptible to doubt and unbelief. It's kept us from fully appreciating the love of God. We don't have a real good image of who God is. And that's the reason that we struggle in our life. You know, there's so many scriptures I could use on this. But over in Ephesians chapter 3... There's a passage there where he prays that you're, you would understand what is the height, the depth, the length, and the breadth of the love of God. And then verse 19, Ephesians 3:19 says, And that you may know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now that scripture on the, on the surface looks like it's contradictory. How can you know it if it passes knowledge? What this is talking about is that if you would experience an experiential knowledge of the love of Christ, that passes mere intellectual knowledge, and then the result of that is that you are filled with all the fullness of God. If you aren't filled with all the fullness of God, if you're full of sickness, if you're full of depression, if you're full of worry, if you're full of bitterness and anger, you are not filled with all the fullness of God. And so if you are lacking in your relationship with God, you could backtrack that verse, Ephesians 3.19, and say it's because you don't experientially know the love of God. If you would really experience God's love, I guarantee you, you'd be filled with all the fullness of God. Man, that is a radical statement. That is so powerful. And yet I don't know how to get people to see this. You know, I had this experience with the Lord March the 23rd, 1968, And my life was just turned right side up instantly. And it was because God showed me His love, a pure, unconditional love. For four and a half months, I was just gone. I don't know what I did. I don't know what happened. But I was enveloped in the love of God. And even though that the emotion wore off, I've never been the same. And this is hard for some people to understand, but I've never been depressed are discouraged since 1968. And some people, you can't do that. You're a liar. That's not true. But it's my testimony and I'm sticking with it. And I've had a lot of really bad things happen to me. But you know what? Once you know that God loves you, I mean, if worse comes to worse, and if I die, I get to go to be with Jesus. So I have bad things happen to me and I have things happen that aren't what I like. But you know what? In comparison to the knowledge that God Almighty loves me, there's just nothing that compares to that. I've never been defeated. I've never been discouraged. I've had discouraging things happen, but I just don't do it. And I know some of you think you can't live that way. Well, don't wake me up because that's how I'm living. And I'm telling you, I believe it's the same thing. If you are up and down like a yo-yo, and if it seems like sometimes you're excited and sometimes you aren't excited, it's because you don't know God. If you knew God, and I'm saying you could be born again and not know God, because Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, he says, Oh, that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection. Paul was definitely born again, but he still, there was more to knowing God than just being born again. 
And he says, Oh, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection being made conformable unto his death. If you are struggling, I guarantee you, you don't really know God experientially. If you knew God and if you were in relationship with God, it's just like Charlie and Jill were singing here. What a joy it is to be one with the Lord. Man, regardless. So the doctor tells you you're going to die. What's the big deal? I mean, God said that by His stripes you're healed, so you're either going to get healed if you know how to believe and receive, and if you don't, you go to be with Jesus. You can't lose for winning. I mean, we sing the songs about when we all get to heaven, what a day that's going to be, and then the doctor tells you you're going, and you fall apart like a $2 suitcase. (laughs) Something's wrong with this picture. You're going to lose your house. Well, you got a home in heaven, a mansion that you're going to live in forever and ever. So who cares if you live on the street for 20 years? It's just temporary. Amen. Some of you are thinking, you can't live that way. That's the way I live. And it's working. You know, if you were to just really know how much God loves you, and what can compare I had somebody come up to me out here and say that they were really blessed by the way that I just spoke the truth and didn't care about what people said, and they were thanking me for that. And, you know, the logic behind this is, it's not that I want to offend people. I don't want to make people mad at me. But it's just, I know that God Almighty loves me. So really, who are you? I just, it's not that I don't love you, but compared to God, who are you? I have people come up and say, I don't like the way you did that. And I just, you know, it's all I can do to keep from saying, who died and made you God? It's like, I don't give a rip what you think. And some of you, I just can't believe you, because you honor people because you don't honor God. When you honor God and he is all all in all in your life, it just really doesn't matter that much what anybody else thinks. Some of you are so codependent upon having your boss like you, your husband or your wife. Some people, well, I just can't make it if my husband doesn't start loving me. Well, you ought to recognize that Jesus is your husband and get to a place to where you want the marriage to work because you want to be a blessing to him, not because you have to have his acceptance to be able to survive. You can trace any problem you've got in your life back to a lack of relationship with God. If you're a drunk, an alcoholic, if you're a dope addict, it's because you aren't using God to satisfy. You're dependent upon something else. And if you had a better relationship with God, you don't need to go take drugs and alcohol and all of this other kind of stuff. Any problem you've got basically comes back to the problem of our relationship with God is not where it should be. I just nearly got off the subject. But really, this is what we're talking about. What is God really like? If you knew God, if you knew who he really is, then you know what? Everything else in your life would operate. But Satan has cleverly put down a lot of misunderstanding about who God is. And one of the things that I've been dealing with here is trying to show you that the Old Testament law was not inaccurate, but it was incomplete. 
And it never gave a true representation of God. God was not the type of God that he was represented in the Old Testament. And I showed last night in uh, Romans chapter 5 verse 13 that for the first 2,000 years after Adam and Eve sinned, God was not imputing man's sins unto them. That means he wasn't holding man's sins against them. He was operating in grace and mercy towards people because that is the true nature of God. God wanted to be merciful to us, but men began to take God's lack of punishment upon sin as approval for sin. And so they began to start yielding to sin and just living in sin. And even though God wasn't bringing his judgment upon sin, Satan was using our submission to him through sin to destroy the human race. And if God hadn't have started doing something to stop the spread of sin, there literally would not have been a virgin left for Jesus to have been born through. The whole plan of God stood in jeopardy. So the Old Testament law was wrath punishment. I mean, severe things that even a carnal person could understand. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the scripture says that the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. That's just saying that a lost man cannot really understand spiritual things. They're very limited. But when you get born again, God gives you a supernatural ability to know things by your heart that you can't know by your head. Before you get born again, you just can't understand spiritual things. And nobody in the old covenant could be born again. Jesus was the first person born from the dead. He was the first born again man. So Old Testament saints could love God and seek God and follow God, but God had to reach them through the external. He had to come through them through the mind because they didn't have a born-again heart. And so, how do you reach a carnal person? He couldn't speak to them in their heart because they weren't born again. You know what a lost man can understand? You could do that again and I'll kill you. Amen. I'll smite you with the botch, the emrods, mildew. Man, you're going to be cursed with the curse. A lost man can understand that. And so God had to deal with us through severity and harshness and punishment. And all of a sudden people realized, "Uh uh-oh, God isn't pleased with the way I've been living. And so what it did, it made them quit living in as much sin. The fear of God will cause people not to live in as much sin. Proverbs chapter, I believe it's 16, verse 6. I may have missed that one. But I think it's Proverbs 16, 6 says, The fear of God, through the fear of God, men depart from evil. And by mercy and truth, iniquity is purged. The fear of God will cause people not to commit as much sin, but only mercy and truth can purge your heart. The fear of God can't purge your heart. All it'll do is limit the amount of sin. So when God started releasing his wrath, it did cause fear. And people all of a sudden that were under the law quit living in as much sin. But the sin that they had committed began to dominate them. And it made them so defiled, it actually turned people away from God. You know, I'm way off of Mark, Matthew chapter 11, but I'm still remembering that. But I'm... These are good things I'm sharing with you. It'll help you. You know, one of the reasons that God didn't show his wrath to Adam and Eve immediately is because he knew that if Adam and Eve fully understood the depths of their transgression, 
They couldn't have made it. Over in Genesis chapter 3, you know what happened to Adam and Eve when they committed sin? It says they realized they were naked. That was it. They didn't realize everything else. They realized they were naked. Did you realize that that is a very, very small part of what they had really done? God was talking to them in an audible voice, face to face. He could have told them, do you realize what you've done? Do you realize what you've released on the human race? Do you realize how many millions, billions of people are going to die because of your action? Do you know what sickness and disease is like? Do you know how much heartache you've caused? The Lord could have just revealed things. If the Lord would have just taken right here from Jamie on down the front row... And have just gone down the line and says, look what's going to happen in Jamie's life and Gail's life and David's life and Charlie and Jill. And if he had just gone down this front row and have shown Adam and Eve the pain and the suffering and the hurt that he's released in these lives, I believe Adam and Eve couldn't have handled it. They couldn't have lived with it. How would you bear the responsibility and the guilt and the shame of doing all of this to the entire human race? Yet God didn't tell them all of that stuff. You know why? Because God loved them and didn't want them to know how bad what they had done was. He didn't, he's not the kind that, you know, like some parents when their kid does something, you just browbeat them and make them feel as bad as you possibly could. The Lord was shielding them because he wasn't imputing their sins unto them. And for the first 2,000 years, he loved people and used people that had terrible sin in their life and people didn't even know what God's true standard was. They didn't know exactly how bad people were because God didn't tell them. He used Abraham who was living in a sexual abomination, Leviticus 18, that according to the law, Abraham should have been killed. And yet God said, this is my friend and blessed him and protected him. He used Jacob, who later was called Israel, who was living in a sexual abomination that according to Leviticus 18, he should have been stoned to death. And yet God used him and allowed him to wrestle with one of his angels and prevail. God was dealing with mankind in mercy because that was the true nature and heart of God. But when man began to take his lack of punishment as approval for sin, they just threw the door open to the devil. Satan was destroying the human race and God had to put a restraint on it. And so he started showing people how sinful they were to curb the amount of sin. But it's like, you know, one of these pills that they advertise on television. They'll tell you if you've got a headache, take this pill. And then they'll say real quickly that the side effects might be that you could die. You will... And I just think, man, I think I'd rather have the headache than all of these side effects. Well, there was a side effect to the law. Yes, it did stop the amount of sin. My own life is a testimony. I lived holy because I was raised under fear of punishment. And I thought I was going to go to hell if I ever smoked a cigarette. But the sin I had committed just dominated me. I felt so unworthy. I felt like how could God... Love me. There was a negative effect to that law, and that is that it drove us from God. And it made us feel, how could God love some sorry individual like me? And that's where a lot of people were. And it was only a temporary way. God only dealt with us that way for a short period of time. And then the Bible says, uh, look here, have you found Matthew chapter 11 yet? (laughs) If you hadn't found it by now, you might as well ask your neighbor to let you look on... I don't think you're going to get there. 
in verse um, 12, it says, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. For all of the prophets and the law prophesied until John. The law was only until John the Baptist. It was not intended to continue. It was only temporary. You know, just for time's sake, I'm not going to turn over there, but Galatians chapter 3. This is one of the major points. That the law was added because of transgressions until the seed should come to whom the promises were made. And that seed was one person, Christ. And then it goes on to say in Galatians chapter 3 that before Christ came, we were like children kept under this schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. But after that Christ has come, we are no longer under the schoolmaster. Three or four different times, Galatians chapter 3 says the law was only temporary. It was only until Christ came. So there's been a total of 6,000 years since the fall of Adam. The first 2,000 years, God did not impute man's sins unto them because he didn't want us to know how bad we were. And yet he had to eventually start putting a restraint on sin because sin was corrupting and defiling the human race. He only did that for 2,000 years. And now, for the last 2,000 years, God has not been imputing men's sins unto them. We haven't been under the law, but the sad fact is we haven't known it. And the church has been proclaiming law and preaching that God is still angry at you and dealing with you according to your sins. But out of 6,000 years, God has been dealing with mankind in mercy for 4,000 because that is the true nature and character of God. He wasn't wanting to impute our sins unto us. Look at this passage over in John chapter 1 and uh, verse 16. John chapter 1 verse 16 and says, And of his fullness... Have all we received and grace for grace. Some translations say grace upon grace. Verse 17, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. If you were to really study this, that verse 17 starts with the conjunction and, I mean for, which means that this is in addition to what was just said or because of. So the point that he's making is under this new covenant, we now have received the fullness of God because the Old Testament, all it did was bring the law. But now we have received the fullness of God. Man, there's a major contrast between the way that things were done under the Old Covenant and the way they're done under the New Covenant. And most Christians haven't understood this. And because of it, they've been trying to mix the two. And they don't mix. They are completely incompatible. They don't contradict each other if you use the law for what it was intended to do. It was just intended to show you your sin so that you would quit trying to save yourself and say, oh God, I need your help. If you use it for that purpose, that's fine. But if you use the law thinking, well, I've got to do all of these things and then I'll add to it the grace of God. I believe Jesus will make up what I can't do. No, it doesn't work that way. You either put faith in a Savior or you put faith in your actions based on your performance, but it's not a combination of the two. That's what Romans chapter 11, verse 6 is saying. Let me use this illustration to illustrate what we're talking about. You know, when your children are little, you have to restrain them from going out and doing what's wrong. You can't wait until your children are adults and can understand everything before you start reasoning with them and showing them what's right and wrong. So how is it that you get a one-year-old to understand right and wrong? It's not through reason. 
You know, if your one-year-old goes over and takes a toy from his brother or sister, and if you say, now, don't do that because that's selfish. God says it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And so, if you are acting selfish, that means that you are being inspired by the devil. And Satan comes only to steal, kill, and to destroy. And if you do that, you're going to find out that you're never going to prosper. You'll never have any friends because you're just selfish. And if you get a job, you'll never be able to keep a job because you are only thinking about yourself. And if you ever do get married, you'll get a divorce. And you know what? If you're trying to tell a one-year-old these things... It's just right over their head. They don't know that. And yet they need to learn not to do this. So what do you do? If you wait until they're three or four, that's the reason they call it the terrible twos because they never were disciplined and taught what to do. The Lord tells you how to do it. You know how you get a child that doesn't understand spiritual things yet? You just tell them, you go over there and take that toy again. I'm going to spank you. And they may not know there is a God or devil, heaven or hell, But the next time they have that thought about, that's mine, they're going to think, "Uh uh-oh, a spanking. And they'll say no, and they'll resist this thought, not because they understand what's happening. It's because they're afraid they're going to get a spanking. And through fear, you can motivate a child to do the right thing. And in our day and age, there's probably some people in this room that think, well, I don't think you should do that. Well, you're wrong. I would agree with you, but then both of us would be wrong. And so I'm not going to do that, praise God. You can say what you want to, but you need to correct a child. You know, our son Joshua, when he was just a year old, we were walking down this country road, dirt road, and we did this a lot in the evenings, and usually nobody was out there. But this time, somebody was coming. We could see the uh, the um, dust coming up, and I mean, they must have been driving 50 or 60 miles an hour on this dirt road way out in the middle of the country. And Joshua was 50 or 60 feet in front of us just walking along and we saw this car coming and they were going to meet at this intersection and you know I physically could not go and restrain him because he was far enough in front of me but because we had disciplined him all I had to do was say Joshua stop and boom he just stopped in that car right in front of him if I hadn't have disciplined him it could have cost him his life And some people think, well, you shouldn't do that to a child. Well, we had another woman in our church that she never disciplined her kids. And I was over at her house and her kid was out in the middle of the street. And she was yelling at him, but he wouldn't listen to her because she hadn't disciplined him. She hadn't taught him. And so he nearly got killed. And I said, I can solve that problem. She says, how? And I took him and just whooped his behind. (laughs) And she says, well, you can't do that. And I said, it works. And while we were talking, he started out into the street and I said, stop. And he looked at me and he turned around and came back. (laughs) You can say whatever you want to, but you need to discipline your children. And in a sense, that's what God did. We weren't able to understand spiritual things and to understand all of the dynamics going on. We were carnal. People weren't born again in the Old Testament. And so God gave us something that we could understand. You go over there and pick up sticks on the Sabbath day and I'll kill you. They didn't understand what the purpose of. Hebrews chapter 4 talks about the Sabbath rest and reveals what the Sabbath was really a picture of. People in the Old Testament thought it was just the observance of a day. A lot of New Testament Christians believe that the Sabbath is all about keeping a day. That is not what it's about. If you are a Sabbath keeper by observing a day, you are breaking the Sabbath. I've got a tape entitled Our Sabbath Rest. 
But a lot of people just thought it was the observance of a day. There were spiritual implications behind it, but people didn't understand that. But God got them to keep the Sabbath, (laughs) amen, because they was afraid God would kill them if they didn't. But when you grow up, you need to go beyond that. And now that Jesus has come and now that we are born again and now that God himself lives on the inside of us and he has given us an understanding that we can know him, you are totally missing it if you are serving God out of fear and trying to keep rules and regulations when the truth is that you're a brand new person and the Holy Spirit would just guide you if you would enter into the new covenant. You know, I just turned 57 years old. My mother is now 93 years old. But she's the one that raised me. My dad was always invalid and then he died when I was 12 years old. And so my mother's the one that really corrected me and did things. And we lived on a busy street and my mother threatened to beat me within an inch of my life if I ever crossed that street without looking both ways. And I got a bunch of whoopings. (laughs) And, you know, when I was a kid... I I looked both ways, not because I thought about cars. That really did never occur to me that cars were the problem. It was my mother that was the problem. (laughs) And to this day, 57 years old, when I cross the street, I look two or three times both ways. (laughs) She grilled this into me. And I mean, I just really am cautious crossing the street. But you know, if, if we were walking across the street and if, I was talking to you and forgot and we just crossed and I didn't look both ways. And if I lived and made it to the other side and then all of a sudden realized, oh man, I didn't look both ways. Please don't tell my mother. She'll beat me within an inch of my life. You know, if that was my response, you'd think something's wrong with you because I mean, she's 93. If I had to, I could take my mother. Amen. I could whoop her. I am not afraid of my mother anymore. But does that mean that I don't still look both ways? No, I do it what's right now because of a different motivation. Am I saying that we shouldn't live holy and act right? No, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying you don't do it fearful that God's going to punish you or won't answer your prayers or that God's angry at you or that you're going to go to hell. That's not it. That is over with. That was only a temporary way of God restraining sin. Now we've got a brand new motivation for serving God. It's because we love Him. It's because we love what He's done for us. And now there's an internal guidance system on the inside that the Lord said in the new covenant, you'll hear a voice saying, this is the way, walk thou in it. Don't be like a horse or a mule whose mouth must be held in with a bit and bridle. That's out of Psalms chapter 32. That's what people who live under the law are living like. People who have just like a dumb animal that you can't talk to them and reason with them. You have to put pain in there and pull this bit and bridle and make them turn. And that's how you control them. God says you aren't like a dumb animal. You're born again. You now have me living on the inside of you. And you'll hear a voice saying this is the way. And yet most of us aren't living under the new covenant and under the freedom that God has given us. And instead we're still living under fear that God's going to get me. God's going to punish me. God's going to be angry with me if I do this or that. Man, that is totally wrong. That was a wrong impression about God. Yes, you know, just like my mother, she used to whoop me, but it really wasn't because she hated me. It wasn't because she was angry. It's because she loved me. And she was trying to help me to do things. That was only temporary. But now she doesn't still dangle me being beaten to get me to do the right thing. She used that for a brief period of time, but then she taught me what was right. And now I'm doing the right things out of a different motivation.
That's the way that Christians ought to be. And yet, sad to say, most Christians haven't understood this and they are serving God out of fear that if they don't do certain things, God's going to be angry at them. That's not it. So that's basically what we've been talking about. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me share this passage with you. We wound up here last night. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19, it says that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Then in verse 20 it says, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be you reconciled unto God. We are ambassadors for God. You know, just like the ambassador from the United States to Israel or whatever, they don't go over there and say what they think. It's not their opinion. They are representing this nation, and they have to represent and say what we say. In a sense, an ambassador is like an interpreter. I don't know if any of you have ever been to other countries where you had to use an interpreter, but I've preached through a lot of interpreters, and I've had good interpreters and bad interpreters. I've had interpreters that don't like what I'm saying, and so they just don't translate what I'm saying. They say whatever they want to say. That's not a good interpreter. That's not right. An interpreter isn't preaching for himself. He's preaching for the person. And we shouldn't be preaching our own doctrine. We ought to be representing God. But the sad fact is that we have been saying our own message based on tradition and not what God says. God says that he was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing men's sins unto them, not holding their sins against them, not preaching that you have to live holy in order to have me love you or to have me answer your prayers or to have me use you. That's what Jesus was preaching, and he gave us that same message. He committed unto us the word of reconciliation, and we should be his ambassador. We should be interpreting for him, not preaching our own message. And brothers and sisters, the church has not been preaching the right message. We have made people sin conscious. We've been preaching the Old Testament law, and it comes because of a misunderstanding about this whole thing about the Old Testament law. And I'm telling you that we are not under the law. And somebody's saying, so man, I can just go live in sin. Well, it's like crossing the street. You know what? I can cross the street and my mother's not going to whip me. And I don't have to look both ways. She's not going to whip me anymore. But does that mean that I don't look both ways? I'm stupid if I don't. But God loves me, stupid. You know what? You don't have to study the Bible and pray and go to church and pay your tithes. God's not going to be mad at you. If you never go to church again, God will love you exactly the same. But you won't love God the same if you don't go to church, if you don't study the Word, if you don't pray. You're stupid if you don't do those things, but God loves you, stupid. Amen? I'm saying God's not mad at you. But does that mean that we now are just free to go live in sin? Well, it means that God's not going to punish you because He is not imputing your sins unto you. God's not going to reject you. But if you go live in sin, you are just hindering yourself. You're giving Satan an inroad unto you. The Bible talks about in Hebrews chapter 12, lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset you. It's like a person running a race. And if you're dragging 100 pounds behind you, you aren't going to beat anybody in the race. 
You aren't going to win anything. If you're living in sin, you're hindering yourself. It's stupid to the max, but God loves you, stupid. God's not upset with you. God's not going to judge you. He's not going to fail to answer your prayer. But does that mean we go live in sin? Absolutely not. First of all, your nature's been changed. You don't want to live in sin if you're truly born again. You may be doing a poor job of it because the law will actually activate sin. I talked about that yesterday morning. But if you are truly born again, your nature has been changed and you don't want to live in sin. Man, that's good. This changed your life. You know, real quickly, I need to deal with some um, things that people always ask me when I'm teaching about this. It says that until the law came, sin was in the world, but sin isn't imputed where there is no law. So God wasn't dealing with man according to their sins. And then in the New Testament, God isn't dealing with us according to our sins. And I always have these questions come up, and so I'm just going to answer them for all of us. Even if you hadn't asked this, you probably will sooner or later. People come to me and say, all right, I understand what you're saying, but what about Sodom and Gomorrah and God judging Sodom and Gomorrah? What about the flood when God killed all but eight people that were alive on the face of the earth? That looks to me like God is imputing people's sins. What about Pharaoh and the land of Egypt where God sent the death angel and killed all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt? That looked like God was imputing people's sins unto them. Well, again, let me say that I'm not the one that came up with this statement. I've quoted scripture to you. This is Paul that said that in Romans chapter 5, verse 13, that until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. So that's Paul that said that. The way that I've reconciled all of this is to say that this is a general statement. This is the basic personality and nature of God that for the first 2,000 years, he did not want to impute sin. But there were exceptions or examples of God imputing sin. But if you look at it as a whole, it was actually mercy. It wasn't mercy on the individuals that received the punishment. But on the human race as a whole, it was actually still consistent with the fact that God wasn't imputing sin. He was dealing with mankind in mercy. But in those instances... I've used this example before, but it's like an infection or something that was so deadly that it was about to infect the whole body and it would have killed the whole body. And so uh, God basically performed an amputation. It would be similar to us amputating a leg or an arm in order to keep that infection from killing the entire body. It was severe. That would be severe judgment on that limb. But you know what? It's actually an act of mercy on the body. You're trying to preserve the body as a whole. And I believe that this is what God did with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, They were living in such sexual immorality that they even tried to have sex with angels. It was terrible. The corruption that was in that place was so vile that it was like a cancer or an infection that God had to stomp it out to preserve the human race. You know, I don't know why it is this way, but it seems like that an infection is easier to catch than healing. It seems like a cold is easier to catch. It seems like that the negative always is easier to come by than the positive, and the negative will spread and infect. You know, you get a little bit of um, rottenness in an apple, and it seems like soon it just takes over the whole apple. It doesn't seem like that the good pushes out the bad. It seems like that the bad always infects the good. And before God could 
perform salvation before people could be born again, the way he had to deal with these things in the Old Covenant was just to stomp it out, to kill it like a cancer or something amputated. And so that's the reason that he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the reason he killed all but eight people in the flood. And that's the reason that he judged uh, Uh, Egypt because they were oppressing his people, his covenant people through which he was going to bring the Messiah and they had to be liberated. So it was terrible judgment on those individuals, but I still believe it's consistent with what God was saying that overall it was an act of mercy. It was the only way he could function uh, and still bring his plans to pass. Everybody follow that? And even with the Israelites going into the promised land and killing all of these people he told Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 in verse 14 12 and 14 he says that you can't go into that land yet because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full they were already sacrificing their children brand new born children to demon gods offering human sacrifices doing terrible things and yet God said that their iniquity isn't full he was long suffering man God was merciful And so I believe this to be an absolute truth that as a general rule, God was operating in mercy, not holding people's sins against them with the exception of sometimes that he did it only for the good of the whole thing. He did not vent his wrath before the law anything like what he did after the law. After the law, man, you find the death angel going out and killing 186,000 men in Sennacherib's army all at one time. God smiting people with cancers and... and, uh, tumors and all kinds of things, and the wrath of God was vented. But that wasn't really the true nature and character of God. And then in the New Testament, there are also some exceptions. Let me just show you a couple of these out of Scripture. Look over in uh, Acts chapter 12. And in the New Testament, God is not imputing man's sins unto them once again. But there are exceptions. Here's one in Acts chapter 12 and in verse 20. It says, And Herod was highly displeased with them of Tyre and Sidon, but they came with one accord to him, and having made Blastus the king's chamberlain, their friend desired peace, because their country was nourished by the king's country. And upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon the throne and made an oration unto them, and the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a god and not of man. Now, for those of you that aren't familiar with Scripture, this is the Herod that killed James, the Lord's brother, that tried to kill Peter and God miraculously set him free. This Herod was was one Herod among many that had originally killed all of those newborn in Bethlehem and that the Herod that Jesus stood before and and Herod mocked him. This was the son of all of those. And this guy had been a bad king, uh, his family for years and years and years had been just doing things. And here he is finally, these people came trying to win his favor. And when Herod sat upon a throne and proclaimed himself as being somebody special and made this oration, which probably he wasn't a very good speaker. But you know what this was? This was nothing but flattery. These people were trying to get his approval. And so to honor him, they played to his ego and they said, This isn't a man. This is the voice of a God. And they worshipped him as God. And this Herod, who had done these terrible, terrible things, received their worship as God. And you know what? God got just a little ticked off. 
Look what happened. It says, And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory, and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. Josephus, a person who wrote a history for the Romans of the first century, he was there and he wrote of this and said that Herod literally, I mean in moments, in less than 20 minutes, had worms come out of his bowels and he fell down dead and these these worms came out of him. He was smitten with worms right in front of the people and instantly died. And this wasn't the devil that did it. It says that the angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not God the glory and he was eaten with worms and gave up the ghost. Now, I think you'd have to say in this instance that God imputed his sins unto him, that God held it against him. But again, this is the exception rather than the rule. And let me add this, that it was for a person outside of the covenant. We have a covenant that says that God has placed all of our sin upon Jesus and that our sins and iniquities He will remember no more and that He's forgiven all of our sins, past, present, and even future tense sin. This was a man that was not inside of that covenant. Now, God was merciful with him. He killed the half-brother of Jesus, James. He tried to kill Peter. He had done terrible things. Uh, and yet... God had put up with him. It's not like God had a short fuse. God was very merciful towards this guy, but when he started receiving worship as God, God had just had enough and wiped him out. To me, that's not inconsistent. God is not imputing man's sins unto them. He's offering mercy to everybody. But there are examples where, you know what? A person is not going to receive the mercy of God and they are doing damage unto the kingdom of God, and I believe that God could wipe them out. It would be an exception, but I believe it happens. I believe this is what happened with Hitler. Hitler, you know, was using uh, demonic things to project and uh, soothsayers to make his plans, and he was prosperous for a long period of time. But man, there were people all around the world praying. And Hitler, I'm sure, was convicted of God. God gave him mercy. God let him go much further than what God wanted Hitler to go. But when all of the Christians on the face of the earth were praying against Hitler, you know what? I believe God turned on Hitler, and I believe God caused that battle to change supernaturally and um, caused, caused the uh, Allies to win. I don't doubt that that was the intervention of God. But I can say this, that God never punishes his own and he doesn't do bad things to us for redemptive purposes. It's just final judgment. God wouldn't be unjust to call all of our sins due, except for those that he's made a covenant with. He promised us he wouldn't do it. But those outside of the covenant, you know what? God doesn't have to suffer with them 10,000 times. Who says that you know, on the, only on the 10,000 first time is he just in bringing judgment upon them? God would be just to judge every person outside of the covenant. But that's not his nature. Overall, he's not imputing man's sins unto them. And there's only rare occasions where he will intervene and bring judgment. But it does happen. Here's another one in the 13th chapter of the book of Acts. In verse 8, it says, But Elimaeus the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, O full of all subtlety and mischief, 
Thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. You know what this was? Paul put up with Elimaeus for a long time, but after a while, finally, he just turned around and spoke the judgment of God and said that there, you aren't going to be able to see the sun for a season. And just like that old cartoon thing where there was this guy that walked around with the cloud over him that rained all of the time, that literally happened to Elimaeus. A cloud overshadowed his head, hung over his head so that he was blind and couldn't see. That literally happened. But it's an exception. This is not the way that God typically deals with people. And notice again that it was for a person outside of the covenant. God would be just at any time for a person who's already rejected him to say, that's it, that's all the mercy I'm extending towards you, you don't want me, that's it. He would be just to do that. But he very rarely does it. And when he does it, it's just in final judgment. You don't ever hear of Elimaeus the sorcerer repenting from this and becoming a part of it. When um, Paul turned around to the woman who had the spirit of divination and was following him around and saying, These are the great voices of God. And he turned around and he cast that demon out. I don't know if any of you have ever thought about this. Why didn't he just cast the demon out in the beginning? It says after many days this had happened. The reason is, is because once you violate a person's free will and they don't ask for deliverance, but you force it, you cast that, you know what that is? That's judgment. And you don't hear of that girl being converted. The Lord is long-suffering. He, in, he indulges our rebellion and things like this because when God steps in and that's it, and boom, He solves the situation... That's taken that person's opportunity, their window of opportunity to repent away. That girl that he cast the demon out of did not get born again. It was a judgment, an intervention. God can do that. He would be just to do it to anybody outside of the covenant, but he's very hesitant to do it. He doesn't do it very often. The other classic example that I'm thinking of in the New Testament would be Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. And people say, what about Ananias and Sapphira? Well, there's three explanations that I've heard about Ananias and Sapphira. This, for those of you who aren't familiar, that's where these people uh, said that they sold their land for so much money and they gave all of it to the church for a communal um, community that they had. But they lied about it. They kept back part of the price. And so when Ananias, the husband, came in first, he said that he had sold this land for so much and uh, the angel of the Lord struck him, and he died. And they took him out and buried him. And by the time that the people got back from burying Ananias, Sapphira came in. And Peter says, So, uh, is what your husband said true? Did you sell the land for this much money? And she said, Yes. And he says, Why is it that you've agreed together to tempt the living God? He says, The feet of them that have just buried your husband will carry you out also. And boom, she was struck dead, and they went out and buried her. That's an example of somebody having their sins imputed unto them. And so people say, well, how, how does that square with what you're saying, that God isn't imputing sins unto people? Well, I've heard three explanations. One of them is that people say that they just died of their own accord when they had been found out, that their heart failed them, fear hit them, and it wasn't God that killed them. They just died of their own accord. I would reject that because Peter 
in the second instance says, Why have you agreed? And then he pronounced and prophesied Sapphira's death. And so I don't believe that it was just them accidentally dying of their own accord. The second thing is people say, well, they weren't truly born again. There are people among the church who aren't truly born again. They were outside the covenant. Therefore, God could have struck them without them uh, without violating his promise that he would never judge us, that all of our sins have been paid for. And I guess that that's a possibility, but uh, it looks to me like that what Ananias and Sapphira did basically was renounce their salvation. They basically operated in greed and renounced their salvation, which is a whole other teaching that I know I probably just opened up a whole can of worms for you, but I'm not going to explain that. I hadn't got time, but I believe that they probably renounced their salvation. And once that happens, you can't be born again again. You can't come back. It's not like some people teach today that you lose your salvation every time you do something wrong and you have to repent and pray through and get born again again. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 6, if you fall away, it's impossible to renew you under repentance. And if this is what happened to Ananias and Sapphira, and if they renounced their salvation, they were reprobate, they were going to go to hell anyway. And so God wouldn't have violated his covenant with believers. They violated it. They were outside of the covenant when God hit them. And let me just say that when the Lord comes back, he is going to come back and bring judgment. Jesus is going to have a sharp two-edged sword go out of his mouth and he is going to destroy people and the blood is going to flow so high for the space of 120 miles that it'll be up to the horse's bridles. That means three to four feet high. And they are going to spend seven years burying and getting rid of the bones and the carnage that's left. God is a holy God and for those who ultimately reject him, there is coming a payday. And God is going to execute judgment on the ungodly. But we are living in what's called the church age or the age of grace. And at this period of time, God is reserving His wrath. And God is not placing it on people with very few exceptions, such as Hitler or Elimaeus the sorcerer or Herod or something like that. As a whole, God is not imputing man's trespasses unto them, and he's commissioned us to tell people that he isn't committing or uh, holding men's trespasses against them. He's, he's operating in mercy and grace. And we need to be preaching this message, and yet, sad to say, most Christians are preaching the wrath of God. You know, when I first got turned on to the Lord, I, the thing that changed my life was understanding that God loved me unconditionally. It just changed my life. And I fell so in love with God, I wanted to tell everybody about the love of God. But I'd been raised in a legalistic system that the model I had, the way you witnessed to people was to tell people, you're a sinner, repent or else, turn or burn. And I actually printed up tracts. I had them printed that said, repent or else, turn or burn. And we used to hand those tracts out to people. We had another tract that we printed up that says, what you must do to go to hell. And then you open it up and the inside pages are totally blank. There's nothing on it. And then you turn it over on the back and it says, that's right, you don't have to do anything because you're already headed to hell. You've got to do something to get out of hell. And that's the way that I used to witness to people. I used to go and grab people if they had a case of cigarettes or a pack of beer or something. I'd grab them and say, you're going to hell. Repent. God loves you. (laughs) 
And you know what? I thought I was trying to tell people about the love of God by condemning them and showing them that they were sinners. And it took a while for my brain to catch up with my heart. I knew that God loved people, but I just started trying to witness the way that everybody else had witnessed, the way that I had seen it modeled in front of me. And it took me a while to realize, like it says in Romans 2, 4, it's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. And so what I'm saying is there's a lot of people who may really love God and have a desire to people see people saved, but they just haven't intellectually understood the things that we're talking about and they are imputing people's sins unto them thinking this is the correct way that we're supposed to we're supposed to drive people to the Lord out of fear instead of draw them out of love. And I tell you there's got to be a renewal of our mind. There's some of my friends who I love and people that I respect that I guarantee you think I'm a little off base because I preach that God isn't holding people's sins against them. And they're people that love God. I was in that situation myself where I was condemning people and yet I loved God and I was trying to share the love of God. So I can empathize and understand where people are coming from, but I'm telling you that this is the message that would change people's lives. If we would go out and preach the gospel, Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, not condemnation. The word gospel means good news or literally nearly too good to be true news. It's telling people that God loves them and showing them that God loves them so much that He placed all of your sins upon Jesus. And Jesus paid for every one of your sins so that they will never be mentioned to you. It's that nearly too good to be true news that God isn't giving you what you deserve that is going to set people free. And brothers and sisters, people haven't been hearing the gospel. The church hasn't been preaching the gospel. The church has been imputing people's sins unto them and saying, unless you quit this, God can't move in your life. That's absolutely wrong. And so we need a readjustment. We need to go back and find out what the true nature of God is. And again, some people have been thrown off because of the wrath of the old covenant. But I've been spending my, all of this time trying to share with you why the old covenant was given and showing you that it was only temporary. He waited 2,000 years to give it. Now it's been 2,000 years since God has been imputing men's sins unto them. And we need to quit telling people that God is holding their sins against them. And if you can understand that, it'll change your life. Amen? Amen. That's good news. That'll help you. Is there anybody here today that doesn't know Jesus Christ personally?